We are born crying. And if we don't cry, the doctor makes sure that we cry. It's seen as the sign of health of the newborn. But unfortunately, that's not the last time we cry. We continue throughout our lifetime and often to the detriment of our health. And as an adult, since it is not considered cool to cry, we cry on the inside and some of us more than the others. And this is true even for the believers, those who believe in Jesus Christ, because we live in a fallen world and we bear the consequence of sin. So what is the solution? Who do we turn to for help? There's an invitation in the psalm to lament. At least two-thirds of the psalm are lament psalms. We've been doing a series on lament psalms. And we've learned first what is a lament. We saw that in Psalm 51. Now there's a difference between crying and lamenting. Crying is an expression of just a pent-up sorrow. It's just the venting up of the emotion. Uh, it, it suggests sometimes that a sense of hopelessness, that nothing can be done. Things have become worse uh, and there's no return. There's no assurance of help. There's no prospect of anything good coming out of it. But lament, however, is uniquely Christian. It's purposeful, knowing that a sovereign God allowed it. And that we can run to God for hope and for assurance because He is good and He does good to His people. So lament turns us towards God and leads us to Him at the point of our deepest pain. So it's a sorrow with a difference. See, while ungodly sorrow turns you from God, a godly sorrow turns you to God. I want to read to you a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, last week we saw how to lament from Psalm 130. We saw three things that we do in lament. I cry, I wait, I hope. I want you to notice the progression of lament. That's the difference, you see, because we move from the challenge that we face to calling on the Lord desperately and to wait on the Lord expectantly and to move uh, and to move towards hope, sorry, in the Lord that leads to praise. And the question is asked, like, why are we doing this series? Because, for one, it is possible that the worst is not behind us. And even in our current situation, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Life throws curveballs. And our prayer is that we, as a family, are equipped to understand with this right uh, approach to biblical lament. And so today what we want to do is to look at the practice of lament from Psalm 5. How to practice the habit of lament. 
we will look at Psalm 5 in three parts. First is the habit of running to God with urgency, verses 1 to 6. Second is habit of being led by God in righteousness, verses 7 to 10. And then the third part is the habit of rejoicing in God continually, verses 11 and 12. Let me just pray before we start. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, all of us who are listening to your word, including myself, would be encouraged, would be equipped, would be uh, that we are able to see the glories of Christ a little more deeper, that we will fall in love with our uh, Savior, our Lord. We pray that the lessons that you have for us would go deep into our heart and bear much fruit in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. So let me give you a little context to Psalm, uh, Psalm 5. Now this is a lament of David. We don't know the exact context in which the psalm was written, but we see that there's no formal challenge. There's no pressing threat on David, and yet he laments. Knowing that the circumstances of life requires God's intervention. And so as you read the psalm, I want you to remember that this is a good outline for us as Christians who struggle uh, with issues that we face on an everyday basis. We desire to obey God and uh, how do we do it in the midst of challenges? So section one is the habit of running to God with urgency, verses 1 to 6. But let me read to you verse 1 and 2 first. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. First, I want you to notice that Psalmist runs to God with an urgency. Notice the four repetitions that are there. Give ear to my words, verse 1. Consider my groaning. You know, those are uh, when it is impossible for you to express into words the feeling that you have, the angst that you have. Uh, give attention to the sound of my cry, verse 2. For to you do I pray again, verse 2. And I want us to understand repetition is not because God does not hear or the assumption that we have in prayer that we, we have to convince God to act on our behalf or to wear him down by this repetition, by asking him again and again. No, my dear brothers and sisters, repetition in Hebrew language is about urgency. Repetition reveals there is this desperation and this persistence on behalf of the psalmist that God alone can be his help. And so what David is demonstrating is that those who come to God in prayer, those of us who come to God in prayer, must come with urgency. And so we, when we pray, we need to move from the sense of mere duty. We just pray, just words, passing off information. Let's move to uh, where it feels like it's like a life and death situation. Second, I want you to notice that the psalmist turns to God because he knows God personally. In verse 2, we see, my king, my God. 
You see, this right approach to God and to approach him boldly and confidently demands a right relationship with God. The psalmist is insisting, David is insisting that the truths that are going to come out from the psalm is only to those who knows the God of the universe as their God. That there is this personal relationship that builds this confidence and this hope that the psalmist has. But look at verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Notice the urgency again. The first thing that the psalmist does is he runs to God. You see, when you're convinced of the urgency of the situation and the desperation for God, your actions will mirror it. We know that God alone can help, but if we don't act on it, then our belief is of no consequence. Then David says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice. We can see this this way. David lays his prayer on the altar as a sacrifice to God. It's a prepared prayer. It's an intentional prayer. It's as if he is bringing with reverence to God the the sacrifice, just like Abel did, who came to, uh, who offered worthily. And unlike, unlike Cain, the psalmist prepares a sacrifice. So here's a good lesson for us. I want to, I want to read this quote. Don't begin your day being a stranger in God's presence. It suggests that you're able to handle things of the day on your own, and it denies the urgency with which you really need God in all things. Third, I want you to see that psalmist runs to God because God listens. We see here, you hear my voice. We have a God who listens. Oftentimes, all we need is a listening ear, isn't it? Yes, we need solution. But we need somebody to listen to us. And that's what lament is all about. A God who listens. Therefore, lament is about telling God your story. God alone is the one to whom you can share your emotions, express your pain, and bear your soul. He is the one to whom you can turn, knowing that there is help. Oftentimes our prayers are like uh, we're sending a telegram, just a few words, and, um, and then we run. But lament has this innate ability to bear open your soul and to linger. I sometimes think, think that no wonder God allows for sorrow because um, uh, it's a main sanctifying tool uh, in our lives. Uh, I think about the difference between uh, man and woman. When you share issues with men, men tend to be the solution providers. We jump in and give a solution. And our spouses say, just listen to me. 
Women, on the other hand, listen to the emotion and their pathos. And thankfully, we have a God who both listens and takes action. Isn't that so beautiful? I remember a story uh, an evangelist, a missionary told uh, many years ago. I was just a kid, but it's just impressed in my head. Speaks about the time when this missionary was playing when he was a kid and he fell and bruised himself real bad. And so his mom started to treat him, took a feather, dipped it in the ointment and would gently you know, try to remove the dirt and, and uh, put ointment on that wound. Uh, two, three days later, the wound is not healing. In fact, it's got worse. It's starting to pus. And so he's taken to the doctor. And the doctor just grabs him, pulls open the bandage and just puts the medicine and treats him roughly. But he gets healed. So he speaks about his mother who showed gentleness, who showed care, but was not able to treat. And here's the doctor who had no sympathy or didn't show care, but was able to heal. But thank God, in God, we have both of these coming together. And that's the, the joy of what a lament is all about. And therefore, uh, David says, I'm not going to pray to anyone. In NLT, it says it so well. He says, for I pray to no one but you. And then having expressed his lament, he waits on God with an eager expectation. That's the latter part of verse 3. See, our lament is neither pointless nor permanent. It is not a one-way flow of information with no response. There is an answer. There is a relief. And that's the joy. The example that I thought about is, you know, I don't know, growing up, you may have had times when your parents said, okay, today you can have ice cream. Just watch out when the ice cream truck comes in, we can buy you ice cream. And so you're out in the front yard playing, but your ears are tuned for that music from that ice cream truck. And as soon as it turns the corner, you are out there getting your parents to buy you ice cream. That is the hope, the joy that lament brings because there is the spirit of expectation. It helps us want to drop the spirit of hopelessness that we have in fear and in, when we just simply cry. But... We can wait expectantly. Let me read to you verses 4 to 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. I want you to notice the fourth thing the psalmist does is he runs to God because he knows the character of God. Notice how much the Lord is against those who sin. There are six things mentioned there. God takes no pleasure in wickedness, verse 4. God cannot tolerate evil, again verse 4. God will allow, will not allow, sorry, the proud and the boastful to stand before him. God hates all evildoers, verse 5. God destroys those who tell lies. And God abhors the violent 
and the deceitful. Verse 6. Now, I think that's a good checklist for us too. That we will adopt the same attitude towards sin that God demonstrates. That we're not just about minimizing sin, but eliminating sin. And so, as we practice this habit of running to God with urgency, I want us to know that God who is our God, our King, is both willing and, and, and is able, but that He, uh, we cannot approach Him with wickedness or evil in our hearts. But I want you to move now to the second part the habit of being led by God in righteousness. Verses 7 and 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. You see, as God, as sorry, as David reflected on the character of God, as he understood God's absolute hatred of sin, and how that the wicked cannot stand before God, two things become apparent to him. One, he understands that his access to God is through God's steadfast love. And so he approaches in reverential fear, as we read in verse 7. David approaches God not because he has a right, but because he has the right fear of God. And um, we see that it is through the abundance of God, of the steadfast love. Then in verse 8, we see, again, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David is acknowledging that only God can lead him in the path of righteousness. What's the meaning of that phrase? Make your way straight before me. We see that phrase being used in the ministry of John the Baptist. We read about it in Mark chapter 1, verse 3. That John would make it clearer to people so that they would know about this Messiah who is coming. Paul uses it in another instance in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 10, when he's talking about Elymas. So Paul is in modern-day Turkey, and the proconsul, he wants to know about the gospel. But Elymas, the magician, he opposed Paul. And this is what we read Paul do in Acts chapter 13, Verse 10, we read here, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And so the idea, therefore, of that phrase is, uh, is about making it clear and easy for people to understand so that they can come to faith as God calls them. And our desire for us today is just that. Those of you who are hearing us, I'm not sure if there's anybody out there who does not know what it means to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. 
I pray that God would make straight your path before you. That you will understand that your sin is abhorrent to God. That he detests. He, we read those six things about what the wicked can never do. But that God has made a way of rescue in Jesus Christ. Who could be your Lord and Savior. That, that there is no other means. There's no other possible means. But to turn to God with urgency and seek to be led by him or that you would come to know Jesus as your personal savior and I really want to ask that if you want to know more about who this beloved savior is reach us on our website newlifebiblechapel.com and it'll be our joy to tell you a little more but let me go on and read to you verse 9 Verse 9 says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. What do you see the contrast here? The David, know, David knows that the wicked cannot be trusted. In fact, those, those things that we read just now in verse 9 is what's quoted in Romans chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul makes a list of all the, uh, of the wickedness of people. It's about all those who don't know God. And, and so we continue to read in verse 10, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. See, when David understood how abhorrent sin is to God, and he chose to be led in righteousness by God, he aligns himself with God and agrees completely to God's response to sin, towards sinners, towards sinners sorry, who perpetually rebel against God. You see, the world doesn't seem to understand. They keep saying, how is it that the loving God can send people to eternal damnation? That's because he has provided a way in his in his love for you in Jesus Christ and yet for those who perpetually rebel God puts them away from his presence and I pray that is not going to be true for any of you it goes on to say this phrase that, that they will fall by their own counsels that's a reflection of Genesis 3, isn't it? Man has always considered and thought that he knew better. He, you hear that expression when you share the gospel. I know, I know, but they're not willing to take that action. I, I, I just don't seem to understand that if you know, why don't you act on it? But we know that it is God's abundant steadfast love that prevails on them and we pray that it will be so with you too because of the abundance or 
the steadfast love that is intentionally multiplied on us. And the opposite here in verse 10, the abundance of their transgression. You see the contrast that the psalmist is making. So they'll be put away eternally from the presence of God. And David knows what is better. And so he seeks, he makes it a godly habit to be led by God in righteousness. The third part in, is the habit of rejoicing in the Lord continually. Verses 11 and 12. Let me read to you verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. And those who love your name may exult in you. Notice three things there. The threefold benefit. For those who take refuge in you rejoice and sing for joy. They have the protection over them. And those who love your name will exult, or as another translation says, they will continually shout with joy. They have this habit of continual joy, a shout of joy, this ongoing habit. And verse 12 says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him or her with favor as with a shield. And what David does here as he broadens the application to all God's people. The experience that David, who is rejoicing in the Lord in spite of the troubles, is now made available to God's people. I want you to understand that this is the first of the 70 references that we read in the book of Psalm about singing. Because the Lord is their shield and their shelter. The Lord is their shield. When you say the Lord is the shield, I want you to understand that it suggests that there is a problem, there's a challenge. That's the reason why you need a shield. But how comforting to the righteous that they are surrounded by the favor of God as with a shield. And so they rejoice, they rejoice. So how do we respond? I was reading a book by Aubrey Sampson. God sings a louder song. In that she writes about uh, a, a babysitter who takes care of her kids, Ashley. And Ashley uh, had just lost her older brother to cancer. And she was lamenting. Now I want to read to you a part that really grabbed my attention. This is just before the lament. In a world full of hate, abuse, and game change, God doesn't avoid or ignore pain. He sings a louder song over it. And he invites his hurting people to sing with him. Lament can lead us back to a place of hope. Not because lamenting does something magical, but because God sings a louder song than suffering ever could. A song of resurrection, renewal, restoration, and recreation. 
Lament helps us to listen for God's loudest song and to believe that one day we will hear it about the noise of our pain. How beautiful it is. But in the meantime, he teaches us to have this godly habit, to run to God urgently, to be led by God in righteousness and to rejoice in God continually. May God bless you. Let me just pray and close. Father, we thank you, O God, that even as the psalmist came to came running to you the first thing in the morning, made it, made us have made it his habit to run to you. We recognize there is no one else, nothing else but only you, that only you can lead us in righteousness, that that is the only way that we can rejoice continually in spite of pain and suffering, in spite of the evil and wickedness, in spite of the challenges that we go through. Oh God, I pray that this would be true for all of us. We would make it a habit to run to you, habit to be led by you, habit to rejoice in you. And that we will lament, O oh God, with hope and expectation. For you, O oh God, are a good God, a great God, who answers prayers, who brings relief, who listens to us, and gives us the hope that this is not permanent. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, amen, amen. I want to uh, give you a homework, if you would. I want you to write your own lament from what you have learned in these past three weeks about what lament is. Write your own lament, an expression of the anguish of your own soul. And you will see how uh, personal this God is as he comes to comfort, strengthen, and in due time rescue you from this world.